Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Later this hour, artist and curator William Downs takes us through iDrum's new exhibition, Stars and Feelings. Also coming up, the next installment in our series, Film Crew Files, where we highlight local film industry professionals. Today, featuring special effects technician Carrie Foreman. But first, in her new children's book, Just Try One Bite, author Camilla Alves McConaughey addresses picky eaters with humor and care. When McConaughey recently joined City Lights host Lois Wrights via Zoom, Lois began with a quote from the book. I'm going to read you the opening of a new children's book called Just Try One Bite. Hi, Mama. Hi, Papa. It's time we had a chat about oatmeal and carrots and pasta and cake and mustard and custard and chicken fried steak about pork butts and peanuts and the choices we make. There's some role reversal here as children plead with their parents to try some healthy eating. The book was co-written by Adam Mansbach and Camilla Alves McConaughey. She joins us now via Zoom to talk about Just Try One Bite. Camilla Alves McConaughey, welcome to City Lights. No, thank you so much for having me. What a joy it was to hear you read. Oh, thank you. A page of the book. Well, I had so much fun. I was laughing out loud, and I wondered what gave you the idea to write this story this way. (laughs) Well, you know, look, I have this big passion of inspiring people of doing better for themselves in different walks of life, like, you know, like I do with women of today. And the relationship with food is such an important one. And it really, you know, I'm a really big believer that you know, look, I'm not here to tell parents what to feed their kids, how to feed their kids. But, you know, the inspiration behind was to do give a reminder in a fun, funny way that the conversation about food, where it comes from, how does it work? What is good? What's not? Why is it good? Why is it not? It's an extremely important conversation. And I'm a big believer that 
the earlier you start that conversation, the most likely you will be setting your child up for a lifelong of good habits because they start to understand how things work early on within relationship to food. I'll give you an example. You know, I grew up, I'm a, you know, I'm from a family of farmers and the relationship with food between, you know, seed to table was very clear for me growing up, but we never had the conversation about sugar. I had as much sugar as I wanted growing up. And what do I still struggle into today after I have three kids and adult life? It's sugar. I still have to struggle with it. I still have to work on it and, you know, have the battle with it. And again, I feel like if we start this conversation early with kids overall and make it fun, make it funny, take the guilt out of it. Talk about the balance. You know, I think it's really important to share too, that the book is not about being perfect. We do say, you know, you can have your ice cream sundaes, you can have your donor hose, just not every day, just more now and then, right? I, I think that it's just, you start early, make it fun, take the guilt out of it and, you know, continue that conversation on your daily life. And it's something that it will pay off. Well, I admire that so much because I know in your career as a professional model, no doubt you have come in contact with other people who suffer from eating disorders. And in our society, we have this bizarre relationship with food and all this stuff we're told about body image. Did that have something to do with why you wanted to write this book and why it's important for you to convey to your kids that just eating well and also splurging occasionally is okay. It is completely okay in my book, right? I mean, somebody might come in and say something completely different, but in my book, I think it is okay. Like in my in my household, it's okay. You know, we've 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 practiced that in the household. We, you know, we have the free for all Friday. You know, where kids eat whatever they want. You know, and we started with. I want candy. Okay. I'm driving to the gas station. Let's go get some candy, you know, and then, <laughs> and then slowly turning to, you know, well, let's get a real dessert instead of candy. And then it turning to let's make our own, right? So it's baby steps. I think that you said it very in a, in a beautiful way that the relationship with food, it's a lot of times not put it properly or not fun. And we're going to have this relationship for the rest of our lives where we need to eat every day, daily, right? Like, like it, we're going to have that relationship forever. And we finding ways to, again, make it fun, get the balance. Relationship with food should be fun. And, and it doesn't have to be overcomplicated. If you at least slowly make better for you choices, do that for a little while. And then you're going to start feeling better. You're going to start having more fun with food. And then all of a sudden you go, you get more curious. You start going, what's the next level of doing better for myself, right? And what's the next one? Yeah. You mentioned growing up in a family of farmers. I love these two lines in the book. The best food of all, the food that really rocks, comes straight off a tree, not straight out of a box. (laughs) So do you and your family plant your own food? Do you have a garden as well? 
We do. So when we lived in California, we pretty much grew majority of the stuff that we consumed in the backyard. We had a little bit of everything and we'll go to the store, you know, for the nuts and the, you know, meats and cheeses and stuff like that. But all the vegetables like, and fruits, I mean, we used to tell the kids, okay, run in the back, go get the blueberries, you know, go get salad stuff, go get the garlic, go get the onions. Like we grew everything. We had bees. And in Texas now, we've been in Texas now for over 10 years. We've got a little bit of challenge growing things there and we still do. And right, the garden was doing really good. We had watermelons growing and tomatoes were coming, the zucchinis and the cucumbers, everything was growing. My little one really loves to watch the whole process. Uh, we had the freeze. So right now my garden is completely empty. It killed mm. everything, but we're, we're, we're waiting for the right time to start all over again. Good. The illustrations are hilarious. Readers see three little kids running after their parents, trying <laughs> to get them to eat carrots and broccoli, while the parents make faces and pretend to barf, putting it elegantly. Would you tell us about the illustrator? Absolutely. So Mike Bolt, oh my gosh, what can I say? He you know, Adam says it in a great way. He says, I cannot imagine after Mike did the illustrations, it's like Adam's like, I cannot imagine the words in the page without the characters. It's like, you really see them. You really feel them. He did such a great job. You, you feel like you're there with the kids going, come on, you know, <laughs> in your face, mom and dad, right? You you feel like you're right there with them. And, you know, and it is a multicultural family, you know, that's my family and that's Adam's family. Like it's, he did a, such a wonderful job. He did. And I love the youngest child, a little boy looks like he's still in diapers or at least a toddler and move over Maggie Simpson because <laughs> this little guy gives Maggie room for competition, I've got to say. What are the contract negotiations the kids make with their parents, Camilla? Oh, in the book? Yeah. I mean, they try all kinds of things. They even offer them a car. <laughs> they, they offer, you know, you can come and do, you know, come to work for a day. You can play this. You can, you know, you can have well, you know, you can stay up late. You can, you know, not take a shower today. <laughs> All those good things we negotiate. You mentioned you have three children in your family. How old are they now? So we have a 9, 12, and 13. Oh, they're big kids. So that little, the little one with the pacifier, he's not out of your household. Yes, we grew out of that stage. <laughs> just like the parents eventually do in the book. <laughs> Did you put anything from your own family into this story? Look, I think that, look, I have three kids. Adam has three kids. Mike has three kids. The editor has three kids. I think we all, you know, could really see ourselves in this book in terms of, you know, trying to get our kids to just try one bite. And I think that majority of parents go through the same struggles, whether easier or harder, you know, kids go through different stages, right? 
And, um, yeah. you know, and one thing too, like, you know, when you have the kids catching the parents, right? Like after their parents, <laughs> I had, my kids have caught me before, right? Like I had my chocolate candy stash, you know, all the way up in the pantry. And I'm thinking I'm being so sly about it. Like, you know, nobody knows is there. And they walk in the pantry going, what are you doing? We know, like, we, we know that's being there. And why are you eating that? You know, they have inspired me to do better as well. Oh, well, or to keep it for that free-for-all Friday, you mentioned women of today just a moment ago. That's something you founded. How would you describe women of today? Look, women of today is such a beautiful community. I'll start with that. We started in 2015. And back then, the conversation was very narrow between just women trying to learn from each other. I mean, the conversation's broader now, right? But the whole mission was, hey, how can we learn from each other? And how can we do better for ourselves, better for our families, our households, and our community? And basically, all the content that you see is content that the community is asking us. And they ask for a lot of food. Uh, food is a big topic on women of today, but it's all better for you, easy to make, accessible, affordable. We also do beauty, we do hacks, we do health, we do a little bit of everything. We do uh, you know, charity work. We just did things with you know, Ukraine and, and Palestine and Israel and Africa. And, you know, and then we go to the community and go, who do you wanna help? And then we have the conversation to give them the power to do so. You know, so it's, it's a beautiful community and we're very active. You know, I highly recommend that people sign up for the newsletter because that's where they get to get the inside scoop of what we're doing. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a labor of love that it's been genuinely organically growing. We, have, we don't do advertisement and, you know, everybody that's there is there because they just really love what we do and what we stand for. Camilla, part of what I enjoyed, in addition to reading Just Try One Bite, was learning more about you. Oh, thank you. Oh, yes, you, you're native of Brazil. Your English is fantastic. And I read that you took jobs cleaning houses and waitressing as a way of trying to learn English, to perfect your language. What a fantastic command you have of the language, and what a lucky family you have. No, oh, thank you. You just got me to your eye now with those kind words. Thank you. I did not speak any English when I first got here, so somehow this is a... <laughs> you know, I went to school, but very little here in the States, very little. So, you know, I still have my moments. I still, I learn a new word every day of the oh. language. It's very cool. Very cool. I'm constantly going, what do you mean by that? What is that? You know, when I've con I'm constantly learning, which is a, it's a beautiful thing. And it's a great practice for everybody, right? You can just learn something every day. Camilla Alves McConaughey. More information on her new children's book, Just Try One Bite, is on our website, wabe.org. It's time now for our series, Film Crew Files, where we hear from the many hardworking Atlantans that keep our city's film sets running smoothly. 
Hi, my name's Kerry Foreman. I live in College Park, and I've worked in the film industry for six years. I started out as a greensman, and now I work in the special effects department as a technician and a foreman. I got into the film industry because several friends were already doing it and with similar skill sets, and they had encouraged me. And my contracting business, which was doing great before 2008, had been struggling for years. So I paid my money to get my membership, and eventually I got a call to get a one-day gig that turned into three months of moving plants around on set for Ozark season one. That's how I got started. It's hard to describe what a typical day in the effects department is like because it could be anything. You could be working in a shop, doing pretty much the same stuff for months, or you could be on set, hiding, making smoke all day, or wiggling trees, or making it rain, or sweeping dirt into millionaires' faces, whatever it calls for, but it's always different, and that's what I like. My favorite part of my job is probably when something really cool goes really well on set, whether it's flipping a car, or a big explosion, or fire. When everybody who sees it happen, who's seen this stuff happen before again and again, is still impressed with how you guys do it, it's, it feels pretty good, and, uh, and it's pretty fun. The hardest part of my job is definitely the hours. It's a minimum 60 hours a week, usually way more than that. And it means you can't really do anything other than work and support your working lifestyle. Because anytime you have time off, you're doing laundry, trying to clean your house, fix any personal relationships that you have, which better be uh, counted on one hand because you don't have time for that. So that's the hardest part is everything it takes away from the rest of your life. I feel like I have been very lucky in my short career to have worked on some very cool projects. Started out on Ozark. I got to work on three huge Marvel films. I got to work on Zombieland 2. Uh, but my favorite was definitely Stranger Things. I got to work on seasons two and three and I fell in love with the show season one. So getting to work on set and see the kids play in between takes uh, was pretty cool. The crew was really awesome. Everybody was super talented and really cared about the product they were putting out. And I was very proud to be part of that team. And getting to watch that show with my preteen son at the time, who was super into it, was an extra, extra bonus for being able to uh, work on such a cool project. So I loved it and I was very lucky to be there. As a rare Atlanta native, I can remember when Georgia didn't really have film and the contrast now is obviously huge and it seems like Georgia and Atlanta have definitely welcomed the film industry in with open arms with the tax credit to begin with and people offer their uh, homes and their businesses and properties up for film sets has been kind of impressive. Uh, I've even worked in the uh, Georgia Capitol building under the Gold Dome. So I've got to say Atlanta and Georgia are pretty good to film. Special effects technician Carrie Foreman and our series Film Crew Files. 
More information about Carrie and his work is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, guitarist, singer, and songwriter, Gentleman Jesse. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Jesse Smith, otherwise known as Gentleman Jesse, has been a fixture of the Atlanta music scene for over 15 years. After taking an extended break from recording, the guitarist, singer, songwriter returned in November with Lose Everything. The new album is steeped in wisdom and heartbreak, and when we spoke last fall, Jesse began by sharing why this album leans towards the darker side of life. You know, my previous work definitely had a lot of lightheartedness to it, but there was always some kind of somber undertones there, and I guess my taste in music started to gravitate towards things that were a little more dark, and so that Mm -hmm. probably influenced it, and then... Ultimately, the title of the album came from a a house on the street that I live in over in the Edgewood neighborhood, burned down just completely to the ground. And so this idea of like complete loss of everything that you've built for a lifetime, just being taken away in one day kind of like stuck to me. And so I decided to center the record around the idea of loss and its different forms. Some of the lyrics on this album are are pretty hard hitters to the gut. One of them in Lose Everything, all of your heroes are dying or dead. Can you recall what they said to you? Tell me about that. You know, it just seemed like a lot of musical icons were starting to die off. It just seemed like one after the other. And it, I, I think as a, you know, a, a collective group of 
music fans, it just seemed like that it was just like, oh, who's next? You know, Lemmy from Motorhead, Lou Reed, you know, just like it just like kept happening. And I think that people yeah. sort of expect it. And I think that there's so much inspiration that comes from lyrics to people. And we have the luxury of adding a musical tone to it. So sometimes those words can carry more weight than the written word just because we can put a, a sound to it and it creates more of an emotive response. So I think that the idea of recalling what's important about what those people were saying, not necessarily let me or anything. I love him to death, but... <laughs> When you started talking about it, originally my first thought went to the year that Bowie passed in the same time that Prince passed or slightly before. And it it did feel like we were losing a lot really quickly. Yeah, it, it, it really did. So, I mean, that kind of inspired that line. But there is a little bit of hopefulness in that sentiment that the idea that you could possibly carry that torch is kind of what's implied there. Another song that I'd like to talk about for a minute is called Hunger. Yeah. Tell me about the line, some say I might have lost my way because the hunger doesn't drive me anymore. So I, I should have been more prepared for this because I can't remember the author's name, but that song in particular is centered around uh, a novel that I read that is called Hunger. And it's about sort of how easily things can kind of snowball in life. And before you know it, you're just kind of like buried in, I don't know, like debt and just like eventually this person in this novel couldn't afford to eat anymore. And it was so bad that he didn't want to eat or when he did, he would get sick. It's a really heavy book. Mm. I wish I could remember the author's name. And I thought that, you know, probably the most, for lack of a better word, happy sounding song on the record. And so I wanted to sort of like have a, a darkness to, uh, I guess, compliment that in a weird way. It does though, it really does. A lot of the songs, they seem like anthems. You have such good pop hooks and you can hear people clapping and stomping to your music so easily. It's really only when you start to focus on the lyrics that a little bit of that sadness and maturity start coming back. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know where that comes from exactly. Being a <laughs> sort of a pessimist, maybe. <laughs> Do you consider yourself a pessimist? From time to time. I don't know. It's I, I switch. It's like one of those things where I feel like I look at the cup half empty, but it doesn't stop me from trying to move forward. What do you, oh, what do you like call it. that? That's scrappy. <laughs> yeah. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Loris Reitzes. We've been listening to City Light senior producer Kim Drobe speaking with musician Gentleman Jesse. He's talking about his new album, Lose Everything. So before we get into more songs, because I did kind of dive right in there, 
I'd like to talk a little bit about how this record came to be. And in the past, for the unfamiliar, it's been Gentleman Jesse and his men. But your men are not here. Did you play every instrument on this album? I did. I did. Well, well first. Wow. Yeah, I've been trying to drop the and his men for a really long time. It, it, I think I like hinted towards it somewhere on the text of the last album, but I haven't been playing shows as and his men for a while. It's just too wordy. But this record is just me, I, you know, and that's a byproduct of the pandemic, ah. not necessarily the way I wanted to do it. But I found myself uh, writing songs was coming more easily than it had been in years prior. And I mm. didn't want to lose momentum in the writing. So I just decided to get together with my friend Ryan Bell, who I played music with off and on. He's kind of a fixture in the Atlanta scene. And he's been recording a lot of bands lately. He plays in Gigi King and he records all those records and many others. And so it was like the easiest way to do it was to just get in there and have him record it and me play it just because teaching a bunch of people songs and not knowing if we were going to be sick was not exactly a good idea. So yeah, no doubt. Well, that's still it's incredibly impressive. Was there a particular instrument that was harder for you to pick up? I've always dabbled. Um, the first musical instrument to come into the home what, when I lived with my parents as a, a young person <laughs> was the drum set. My dad was a drummer and one of my older brother's friends was selling a drum set. My dad was like, oh, we're, we're getting that. And, uh, <laughs> and so that was always around, but I never focused on it. Like I would always fool around. And so I could play enough to like keep a beat. I'm not like an exceptional drummer by any stretch, but I have been playing since I was about 13. So I would have loved to have another drummer <laughs> available at that time. <laughs> I feel like that's maybe what's most compromised about the record, but you know, we got through it. I'll tell you what, playing drums for, we had to get it done in one day. So I had to play drums for 13 hours straight. What? Yeah, it was intense. Why did you have to get it done in a day? Um, because we were borrowing pieces of equipment and we recorded it at a practice space and another band was practicing the following night. And I, and so it was just like, it's now or never. So, oh my gosh, did you get blisters? Uh, not too bad, actually. You know, I tried to like when I knew that I was going to be playing for that long. So I tried to remember <laughs> finesse, at least in the way that I was mm. hitting the drums and holding the sticks and things like that. So not, not too bad. It was more, uh, you know what? The worst was my hip. <laughs> From the kick or the something? The kick drum. Oh my God. Yeah. That is an incredibly long time to sit behind a drum yeah, kit. Yeah. I definitely felt for all the drummers that I've known in the in the past and been like, oh, maybe this is why you guys get the reputation for being a little off. <laughs> I mean, plus load in and load out. It's never fun for Oh, and no one helps them. <laughs> You mentioned your father having been a drummer. What does he think about your musical career? Uh, he likes it, but it's also one of those things, whichever band has the best drummer are the ones that he likes the best. <laughs> He's like, yeah, your guitar playing's fine, but who's, who you got on drums? <laughs> Can we talk about one of the more serious songs on the record, Dead May Rest? Yeah. I never could solve this Yeah. 
one's a little tricky. It's a there, there's a lot that I'm trying to get together in a short amount of time there. And it sort of has the idea is the trappings of American life mm. and the negative aspects of capitalism. But I also wanted to try to tie that into like personal relationships as well and how all these things sort of interplay and how you spend so much of your life working towards something and how it feels like you can't get there. Kind of like, I don't know, ingrained into the, the fabric of this country. It seems like that you're supposed to work really hard and always strive for more, but it's like, it doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere. Yeah. In Dead May Rest, you have a line that says the dead may rest, but their lessons may return. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's something that we've been dealing with a lot in the past few years is the idea of trying to not let history repeat itself and to sort of be a counterpoint to that. It just feels like it keeps going and going and, and we just keep doing the same things over and over again. I hear you. Another line in there is you can't wash the blood off history, which feels so right for this time. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to talk about the cover art on the album. Who did that beautiful haunting photo? A photographer by the name of Riley McBride. They actually were an employee of mine is how I met them. And they told me that they were having a photography exhibit at the Mint Gallery over on the West End. So I went to go check it out and I was really taken by their photographs. I purchased one at that show and then I was like, I really want them to shoot my album cover if they're interested. And I talked to them and they were. So that's awesome. There's a back cover that was really good. It's a picture that they found when they were looking around the city for things to shoot. And it was a bird's head that was on the concrete. Um, And so that's the back cover of it. And it was like, I almost use it as a front cover. Just, you know, obviously that ties into the record as well. (laughs) But I thought that that may be a little heavy handed, but too good not to use. So it is the back cover. Back cover it is. That makes sense. You obviously have a great appreciation for art. And is it accurate to say that you also dabble yourself? Yeah. So the insert of the record comes with a booklet. Each page has the lyrics to the song. And then there is a lino cut print that I did to accompany the song. So each song has something illustrated to go with it. And so, yeah, I dabble a little bit. I'm not good. I just, I like to do it. And doing prints like that is A, like the kind of music that I make. It's pretty quick and sort of gratifying in the DIY aspect of it. And it looks good, even if you're not really that talented, which is what I feel about (laughs) the music that I make. It sounds pretty good for not being that good. Oh my God, you're ridiculous. For the unfamiliar, can you explain what a lino cut print is? Yeah, you get some sort of block and you kind of like carve it out, cover it with ink and then press paper on it. So you can be really not a great illustrator and sketch out a rough idea. And then you, when you carve it out just by the process, it looks pretty cool. Last year after John Lewis passed away, You made some prints in his honor, right? Yeah, I did. You know, I wanted to be able to do something to contribute to some sort of push somewhere. And so after he passed, I was like, I'm going to make a print. I just sold them for $30 a piece. And I was able to raise $1,300 for Fair Fight Action because the election was coming up and I really wanted people to be able to get their voice heard. I was floored by the response and I was definitely flattered that people were interested. 
That's fantastic. So you mentioned that you've been trying to get away from the mouthful of and his men for a while, but was the idea of being solo on stage something that was ever appealing to you? You know, I do it from time to time. A lot of my songs do best when there's backup vocals or there's some sort of bell and whistle. With this material, just the way it worked out is a little bit more self-sufficient. So I'd probably be more interested in doing it now that the material lends itself a little better to it. But I, you know, I've had people who are like, you should play a solo set. You can do that song, All I Need Tonight. I'm like, the whole song is backup vocals. So I'm not very good with that without the rest of the gang, so. I do remember a show, gosh, this is, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, where Greg Cartwright from The Raining Sound and previously The Oblivions had asked you to do a solo set. And I just remember chatting with you before the show and you just did not seem like you were on board with playing solo. And you did a great job, but it, it felt as though possibly someone had talked you into it. Uh, that's usually how it goes with that kind of stuff. And and, I, <laughs> and I'm easily coerced. It's one of those things, you know, I've been playing music live for longer than I haven't been. Oh, that's a weird sentence, isn't it? Yes. But I still get nervous and I still just get like the anxiety of I just want to get this done kind of thing. So <laughs> and when you have some other people up there to share the brunt of the attention um it's a little easier but when you're just by yourself and maybe your flubs just they get noticed a lot more easily in that <laughs> circumstance so not what i set out to do <laughs> atlanta's own gentleman jesse more information about his latest album lose everything is on our website wabe.org coming up We'll hear about iDrum's new exhibition, Stars and Feelings, from artist and curator William Downs. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and it's great to have you along. The art gallery and community space iDrum finally has a new physical home in Atlanta after vacating their Forsyth Street property back in 2018. Now located on Ralph David Abernathy Boulevard, the nonprofit is celebrating with Stars and Feelings, a new exhibition curated by Atlanta's own William Downs. Downs previously taught at Georgia State University, and it was there that he became familiar with a new generation of artists. Downs created Stars and Feelings to showcase six Black female artists who express their identities through their work. City Lights host Lois Reitzes recently spoke with Downs over Zoom, and he began by giving a brief history of iDrum. IDRUM is a very unique space. It started in 1998. It was one of the first spaces that I can remember that brought together music and art and experimental sound, video, and performance. We had the contemporary nexus, I should say, but there was not a gallery that was artist run and open to whatever young artists were interested in. So iDrum was the first one and now it's 
here to, again, I think they've gone through four different spaces since I last showed there in 1998. And then here in 2022, I'm organizing a show that feels really great, but it's a very unique space and I'm really excited about it. It's a particular demonstration of generosity when an artist wants to curate a show. Why did you want to create an exhibition focusing on female Black artists? I feel like in my long years of making art and traveling around, there hasn't been an exhibition that was this focused, and particularly young Black American women who explore different media mediums. But um, I was influenced also by the way that they produce work. Not only do they make drawings and paintings and sculpture, they all make murals. So I thought that was a really beautiful connection that I kind of drew everybody together with. And I feel like this is a time in their careers where they're so busy. They're so busy. Each one of them are just showing all over the place, but in group shows and some are outside of the city and then some are just here and there in Atlanta. But I thought I would just gather them all together because they're friends. And I've learned a lot about them through um, the pandemic when we were Instagramming or Zooming. So I really felt like this was a good time to put this show together because it highlights such amazing work. What was your selection process for choosing these artists? Um, I'm, I'm a Capricorn, I should say that. Um, <laughs> and that <laughs> has to do with? I work all the time and I'm very structured in my life and my career. Order is very important and my routines are so important in terms of how I do things. So each one of these artists have, they're like an arm length around me, meaning that I've either gone to their studios or I taught them drawing and painting in college or they've worked for me in my studio. So it's like they're in my orbit and <laughs> okay. I've written recommendations for them for things. And I've been admiring their murals around town. So also Adult Swim and Living Walls kind of brought everybody together in the last two years to make these murals. So that was another thing. I thought that was really beautiful that we're all in this kind of movement. Would you tell us the story behind the title of the exhibition, Stars and Feelings? Yes. The umbrella, the female that really possesses me in my studio is Nina Simone. Oh, and good choice. <laughs> yes. Her voice, her power, the way that she maneuvered herself through the music world and through traveling kind of made me feel like each one of the artists in the show had a little slice of her in their life and work. The show title came from the titles of two of her songs, one called Feelings and one called Stars. So I thought that was a really beautiful connection to connect these two songs that mean different things, but her voice and her words have so much power. And I feel like that kind of oozes out of all of these artists' work. William, would you tell us a bit about each of the artists 
whose work is on display. Yes. Ash McMariner. She is from New Orleans. She is one of the lead painters for Living Walls. She's a muralist and a sign painter. Really amazing. She was my studio assistant for my whole time making my mural for Adult Swim and Living Walls last year. So we worked together producing a piece for me. And then now she's leading the crew with Living Walls. And she makes paintings on mirrors and she makes sign calligraphy work on found objects. The piece that's in the show is one of those. She made a, a sign on top of a puzzle. So that's really great. The next one is Sofa Hood. She floats between, or she blurs the lines between graphic design and painting and color theory. Her works are about femininity, gender. She's a very good colorist. And she highlights the sensibility and sensitivity of the female form and the spirit and the unity of women. And then there's Dene Antoni. She makes drawings on paper and collage works. She mixes cultures and art history together, but highlighting the female form. The works that are in the show are very beautiful. They're small in size, and they highlight the different sections of the body. I read that she seeks to dissect and understand femininity in patriarchal structures. How is that revealed in her work? She's using Renoir paintings to kind of cut them up. And some of the painting pieces are in the collage. So she's mixing that with the female form. And they're very ambiguous when you look at them. The titles give them away. And then we have Nanika Kai. She went to Georgia State also. She's a fiber artist. But in the show, she has four drawings and a really beautiful fabric piece that she's been working on for a couple of years that talk about hair. And it stretches between line, gesture, collage, and actual weaving hair into the work or making large-scale sculptures that are made of um, different types of hair. They're very heavy, very beautiful, and dense. What do you think she's commenting on? Do you think she's addressing black hair in particular? Yes, she's talking about the black hair and how black women, how their hair is so important and how it's such a process in terms of straightening hair and dreading hair and using different types of wigs sometimes to create a different kind of hair. So it creates an identity for a particular female. But in this case, she's definitely commenting on fiber art and she's showing how hair is very dense. And when you see it from afar, you can't tell that it's hair until you get really close. And so it's like this really beautiful surprise that you get when you walk up to the sculpture. And then we have E.L. Chislam. 
She also went to Georgia State. I taught her life drawing. So when she was my student, we talked about how to embrace or how to um, structure the female form and to create a poetic gesture out of that. A lot of her murals in town, they kind of have a really romantic notion of the female form. The two pieces that are in the show are really beautiful and they both kind of highlight the face and emotion. And these two, I think, are the first paintings that she made on panel, wood panel. And I think this is gonna be a new series for her to mix different types of papers with paint, with a female form in the center of the um, canvas. But they're all expressive and they, you can just feel the emotion in the face when you see the actual painting. Um, also, color theory is something that she's also interested in. So I'm really excited about that. And then we have Jasmine Nicole Williams. She's, I don't want to label anyone, but I think out of all the group, she's probably the most specific. She's a printmaker. She makes block prints. And that's what attracted me to her work when I first met her about a year ago. They were really beautiful, large female form block prints that had just a little bit of color, but they were all black and white. And the expression was really amazing because when you see woodcuts, there's a lot of carving that feels really crude. I feel like hers are very sensitive and they express um, her care and concern for lying, which I'm really excited about. The piece that she has in the show, she's shouting out to Sola Wit, which was really mind blowing for me when I had my Zoom conversation with her and I was watching her make the piece over the last couple of months. It's black and white. And when you look at the composition, you start to see female forms. And I think that's a really beautiful puzzle that she's creating for the viewer. Saul Lewitt, some listeners may be familiar with his work that was in the High Museum originally. Many of these works are quite vibrant, and I was hoping you'd comment on the role of color in the artwork that makes up this show. Yes. So my work is black and white primarily right now. And in my um, curatorial, I guess, research, I wanted this show to have a lot of color, but with two black and white pieces that would kind of balance and create a nice juxtaposition of the colors. But um, Erica's work has always been really colorful. Even when I first met her at Georgia State, her large murals are just so colorful. And Sofa Hood, has a lot of pink, which is one of my favorite colors. I think pink is her base for a lot of her work. So I wanted those two artists to kind of be the heavier weights in color. And then Erica's work is primarily black and white as well. So her piece is right next to Danae's piece. And that work is primarily pink too. So pink is like the heavyweight color in the show and they're all very vibrant. So I think that's what I was really attracted by was that use of that color and how they express it and use it in a different way um, throughout each person's voice. 
William Downs, curator of iDrum's new exhibition, Stars and Feelings. The show is on view through June 19th, and more information is available on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., actor and comedian David Cross stops by. Plus, music contributor Vaughn Phoenix shares his monthly recommendations with Punk Black To Go. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.